Alrighty, people, hello again. As ever, you're in for an extremely exciting adventure tonight. <clears throat> because every call-in room with me is an adventure. And frankly, every day of your life should be an adventure, with or without me. But I'm hoping at least my influence could add a bit of adventurousness to your to your life. And hopefully I'm improving my skill at killing maybe 30 seconds to a minute as I wait for people to file in at the beginning of these episodes. Okay. So uh, I guess just a quick little, I don't know, semi-amusing anecdote, if you want to call it that. I'm still in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, you know, have had a, an action-packed couple of days. And uh, today I strolled around the Capitol, not to commit an interaction, interaction but just to uh, observe. And I got there late afternoon, so maybe 5 o'clock. And I noticed that the Senate portion of the Capitol area, uh, so the outside area around the Senate building, was blocked off by fencing and guarded by Capitol Police. Now, this wouldn't ordinarily be the case, or at least it wouldn't have been the case in my memory going back years, every other time I'd been to this part of D.C. Um, And the explanation that I got from from a Capitol Police officer was that just in the past two or three weeks, this is what he said, has there been a protocol change to like the security posture of the Senate? And they decided now to, on sort of an ad hoc basis, fence off like the uh, external area in on the outside of the Senate building when there's a vote in progress. So he actually even said that this area is not fenced off merely when the Senate is in session, but specifically when there are votes in progress. So I was there while a vote was in progress, and the Senate is still in session. The House is not, but the Senate is still in session because there's some sort of unusually late business that they're finalizing um, around both the big, uh, you know, scale, the scale down, build back better type bill that, you know, Manchin just dramatically agreed to, but also other stuff. There was some, uh, I think a judicial nominee who was uh, voted on this evening. Um, but regardless, you know, it's not been normal in the past that I've in the past when I've been to DC that this portion of the Capitol would be fenced off. So, you know, I wasn't actually hundred percent sure if this was because of some January 6th thing or, or what. And apparently it had only been just in the past couple of weeks that this new change had been instituted. So what in practice it does is it makes it more difficult for journalists or even just ordinary citizens to uh, encounter senators and presumably also uh, members of the House, although I'm not 100% sure if this also applies to the House. Um, whereas typically you could just kind of stroll up and just bump into a senator on his way in or out of the uh, chamber. 
So I saw a bunch of senators, you know, uh, going in or out. I saw Senator uh, Lankford and Senator T- uh, Rick Scott. I saw Senator Ben Cardin. I saw Senator uh, Sheldon Whitehouse and others. <coughs> Senator John Hickenlooper, who I called out to, and he said he didn't know why <laughs> the area was fenced off. Um, but, yeah, this is one of the intuitions that I had around January 6th when, of course, infamously, the entire capital area was placed on essentially lockdown for, what was it, two or three months afterwards, and where there was this barbed wire fencing and so forth. Um, you know, they took that stuff down, but clearly there's still – there is some – permanent changes that have been instituted around the perimeter of the capital that makes it more difficult to have organic interactions with legislators. <clears throat> now, I uh, also happened to encounter Senators uh, Sherrod Brown and Alex Padilla because they had exited the fenced-off area and were just sort of chatting with this group of veterans who were kind of camping out were congregating near the Senate to protest the lack of action taken on this bill that you may have heard about uh, having to do with providing health care for veterans who have been exposed to toxic burn pits. John Stewart you know, has been advocating for this, and he was uh, <clears throat> apparently there at that spot uh, outside the Senate today. Uh, I didn't see John Stewart when I was there, but uh, apparently he was there earlier in the day. <clears throat> Um, and so I asked, uh, Senator Padilla about this, meaning about just quick, you know, I asked him about the fencing policy and he actually said that the senators themselves oftentimes don't know exactly what the rationale is for when the fences will be up or down. And so he claimed, at least, he didn't have a good idea of what the policy even was, in part because he said, like, the rules committee that would technically preside over decisions like this is sort of oblique in its processes. You know, I would think that a senator – there's only a 100 of them (laughs) – I would think that a senator could – seek out that information if he or she so desired, but at least according to what Senator Padilla told me, he didn't really know what the policy was. Um, He said he thought that it might have something to do with the, quote, Supreme Court stuff, which is also, you know, a tad imprecise. I'm assuming he means, you know, the protests that that were held around the Supreme Court in response to the Dobbs decision, you know, that overturned Roe versus Wade, obviously. Um, so that would mean that there was, there was something, there was a new policy instituted just very recently, and it would confirm or, or corroborate what the Capitol Police officer told me that this is only as of a few weeks ago that this has been uh, enacted. And in fact, the police officer told me that his understanding was that they, the Senate had wanted, or this was in discussion, to do for years, meaning to fence off this area so there would be less of an opportunity for the public to just kind of organically interact with senators. This had been in the works in one shape or another for uh, for years, but they finally got around to uh, to formally 
enacting it just a couple weeks ago. So uh, if that's true, um, then there are some longer-lasting permanent effects of January 6th that really have a limited real, the uh, ability of, of the public to just you know, interact with, with their elected officials, which is sort of what make, may, has historically, or at least in my experience, made Washington, D.C. pretty, uh, I don't know, uh, enticing or even heartening in a way because there's, uh, there's a lot more access to you know, powerful elected officials for just ordinary citizens than you might otherwise – than you might think if you never really even attempted to speak to them. I mean – I, I would think that most Americans who haven't been to D.C. maybe or really aren't familiar with the uh, mechanics of how at least you know the capital area works, they might not really appreciate that you at least in earlier times could just you know walk into the office buildings without an appointment and go into a senator or congressman's office or you know make an appoint even make an appointment with them or even just you know. Uh, Try to encounter a legislator by by happenstance, like on the street somewhere, or on the sidewalk, or wherever. Um, but you know that really has been the case in the past, and uh, clearly they're using now the precedent of January sixth to uh, chip away at that. And so, you know, if they can claim that there's some other security situation that they have to respond to, like the Supreme Court uh, hoopla. Uh, they can use that as a justification to to curtail the public's uh, access. Um, so anyway, that was just something I noticed, and it's not particularly relevant to the other topic that I want to discuss. But it, in a way, I mean, it is tangentially because you know, although I wasn't really looking to to uh, bombard senators with questions today about Ukraine or Taiwan, you know, in theory, I, I would or could. And, uh, you know, my ability and anyone's ability to do that is seemingly lessened. Anyway, I had a, you know, a post today that uh, hopefully some of you may have read by now, but if not, you know, I understand we all have things to do. And, uh, you know, there are so many substacks and so little time. Um, but anyway, this is sort of this derives from the uh, America First Policy Institute summit that I was at for the better portion of last week, and that was an event where I did want to specifically press elected officials about foreign policy because supposedly this organization is the shadow government of sorts for what the next Republican presidential administration would uh, would impose through you know personnel and through policy um, so that's so explains why they named the organization the America first Institute just kind of make it seem as though it's the natural successor to the Trump administration, and sure enough, I mean, it was founded by Trump administration officials. The per people who chair the board 
the board of directors for the America First Policy Institute are uh, Larry Kudlow and Linda McMahon. So, you know, two very edgy, subversive figures, no doubt. And, uh, you know, they were there at the summit. And, um, and the reason I was wanting to pay special attention to foreign policy is not just because I have an you know, individual interest in foreign policy, perhaps more than some other issues, which is true, but also I wanted to probe whether the foreign policy positions being staked out at this so-called America First event were uh, consistent with what is generally thought to be the principles of America First vis-a-vis foreign policy, which if you discuss America First online, as I do, just as a sort of a concept, it's it's almost just invariably assumed that America First has to mean some uh, variation of isolationism or uh, non-interventionism. And when I say isolationism, I don't even mean that as a slight or a pejorative, although it's usually used as such. I just mean you know a, cl- a clean break from the overwhelmingly interventionist bipartisan foreign policy of, of uh, both the Democratic and Republican parties. That's generally assumed to be what America First entails, at least on a foreign policy basis, one would think. But the main takeaway that I had from this conference or from this summit, I don't know why everything is called a summit now, as though it's like, I don't know, Alexander the Great. But um, the main takeaway that I had from this summit was that there, I didn't hear a, s- a single word uttered that could be conceivably consistent with a non-interventionist foreign policy at all. In fact, it was really the, di- the diametric opposite because every word I heard uttered about foreign policy was a, more or less the denunciation of the Biden administration for not being aggressive or hawkish or interventionist enough. So, you know, Joni Ernst was calling for the annihilation of Russian forces and making them so bloody and bruised in Ukraine that they never come back. Um, Republican congressmen and senators were talking as though essentially the U.S. was a co-combatant in in Ukraine, which is not anything new, but really is uh, incongruous with what I think most people assume to be the prevailing ethos of quote, America first. And, you know, so if the people being showcased as representative of America first at this summit um, are really totally inconsistent with what would basic, more or less just reflexively be assumed to be the prerogatives of America first, that's notable because it, it keeps coming. I was keep. I keep. I kept coming back to this definitional quandary that inevitably arises whenever one discusses America First. In my experience, which is kind of just a uh, a spinoff of the No True Scotsman fallacy. And what is the No True Scotsman fallacy? Well, I mean, just to summarize, it's someone saying that you know a Scotsman does X, I'm a Scotsman and I do X, and his critics saying, you know, no true Scotsman could ever do X. And so, you know, maybe that's not the most philosophically precise way to 
uh, articulate what the no true Scotsman fallacy is, but it's this, you know, more essentially a fallacy which says that you know no true America first individual could ever endorse this policy because you know I know what the pure form of America first is, and therefore. Anybody else who ever identifies as that, you know, couldn't possibly be an authentic representative of America First. Well, you know, number one, this is specifically named the America First Policy Institute. It's endorsed by Donald Trump. Trump made his first appearance back in D.C. since leaving office at this summit to deliver a speech. He gave the organization at least a million dollars. And he seems perfectly in good graces with the organization. I mean, they at the speech Trump gave to close off the event, there was a uh, four more years chant breaking out amongst the Republican operatives who were there. Um, and so the idea that this couldn't possibly be a true America first event just doesn't hold water. Or at least if this doesn't qualify as a genuine America first event, then the term really has lost all meaning and is not even really worth adjudicating any longer as some kind of coherent ideological designation. Or as I said in the Substack, um, it's kind of gotten to the point where you know debating the meaning of America first is like de- debating the meaning of Christmas. <laughs> so um, you know, people online might strenuously object to the this group being identified as America first in any, you know, meaningful respect. But in practice, it really doesn't matter because these are the, quote, America first types who are probably going to be staffing the government if Trump were to be in office again. And so that's more significant than, you know, these abstract debates over, you know, what the nature of America first really is. And, you know, so the most kind of glaring example of this mentality was, I think, probably Congressman Michael Waltz, Republican of Florida, who was being touted as somebody who's going to be a key foreign policy decision maker in the Republican majority if the Republicans win the midterms. And, you know, he was, you know, basically promoting this idea that he had after having just returned from Ukraine for one of his many pilgrimages there, I'm sure, um, where you know he met with Zelensky and he wanted to impart the message to Americans that uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainian military are you know frustrated or, with the Biden administration's lack of resolve you know around Ukraine and they're annoyed that they're only getting these weapon influxes in a piecemeal fashion and so Waltz declared let's you know let's just win the damn war which means among other things to him sending in special forces u.s special forces into ukraine i think he would say that they're special advisors special military advisors and the idea behind that would be that in order to adequately monitor the provision of military aid flowing into Ukraine, you need actual military personnel on the ground in Ukraine on an like, operational level. So he denies that they would be involved in direct combat on the, quote, front lines. But who knows? Um, so that's a 
overt U.S. military deployment to Ukraine that Waltz is calling for. He says, by the way, that the British forces are already doing this, which would I would think mean that the U.K. is at war with Russia in Ukraine, although there seems to be a conspicuous lack of interest in interrogating that further. Like, what are the actual details of the U.K. military deployment in Ukraine? Um you know, there's a UK uh, Conservative Party leadership contest happening right now. And as far as I know, this really hasn't come up in terms of the media questioning of the two remaining candidates. But whatever. Um, so I, the, the thing that I thought was most telling about this proposal by Waltz was, number one, that he would probably chair a foreign relations or, you know, uh, armed services committee of some kind should he – should the uh, Republicans win the midterms, right? Um, but number two, that you know, think of what think of what his rationale is here, because he's saying that the quote that he gave to me when I spoke to him directly was that we can't just let these weapons go down a quote black hole. So he's saying that the U.S. is just dumping weapons into a black hole, which has basically been assumed or known, or you know alluded to in past reporting, but I hadn't personally heard an elected official state it so bluntly. And yet here is not a skeptical elected official as regards the U.S. involvement in Ukraine saying this, but a adamantly hawkish elected official saying this and using the fact that there is so, uh, so inadequate monitoring of this aid to serve as the basis for his now uh, more forceful demand that there be some kind of new U.S. military deployment to Ukraine. Okay? So that's what he's advocating. And he, this is the person that was held up as representative of, Amer- of, of America First at the America First Policy Institute. Now, I mean, you tell me what that I'm supposed to make of that because already since my Substack has gone up, I've gotten the exact kind of responses that I would have predicted, which is that, you know, I don't understand what real America first is and I need to study the subject more. Okay. Well, I mean, the whole point really of my writing this was to talk about the fruitlessness of getting mired in that whole definitional quandary in the first place, given that, you know, America first has a branding exercise is now basically merged with the establishment of the just mainline Republican Party, hence the attendance of this uh, summit by people like Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, um, and uh, Lindsey Graham, who I also spoke to, and I, I uh, transcribed our interaction for the for the Substack. Um, so that's the Ukraine piece, but now we have this Taiwan thing, which is really pretty wild when you think about it. I mean. Wild in the sense that Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, at least if you're just going based on the superficial reporting around this episode, we would have to conclude that Nancy Pelosi just woke up one day last month and decided that, the, that she was going to virtually out of nowhere contrive a crisis in Taiwan. Now, Pelosi, of course, would have had to have known that her making a trip to Taiwan would be viewed as extremely provocative by China. 
whether she has a, quote, right to go to Taiwan or whether China should have a veto over where the Speaker of the House travels is really irrelevant. What's relevant, at least by my lights, is that in deciding to make this trip, Pelosi would have had to have known that it was going to be a major source of brouhaha to the point of potentially even triggering some kind of military confrontation because Pelosi is not dumb. Now, when I say that's a superficial reading or just a a surface-level interpretation of these events, I'm assuming that there are all kinds of behind-the-scenes machinations that we have not been privy to yet. Like, we're supposed to believe that uh, the Pentagon was in some sense opposed to this or warned Pelosi against it and even suggested that she might be shot out of the sky by the Chinese military if she did make this trip. And that there's some fissure uh, potentially between Pelosi and Biden, which you know I guess is possible, but it would also seem bizarre that Pelosi would you know, defy Biden and run the risk of causing some kind of major conflagration. Um, but regardless. It's a proactive decision on the part of somebody or some group, which presumably includes Pelosi, to you know, instigate a quote-unquote confrontation of some sort with China and you know, the, the, the decision to initiate this was on the part of U.S. officials, not really Chinese officials. Yes, they have made threats, but they're not the ones coming into U.S. territory or something. It's the reverse, right? It's it's the senior most U.S. elected official, at least in the legislative branch, choosing to go into a territory that everyone knows would have caused this kind of consternation. So, um, Pelosi has left us all, you know, in suspense as to what the hell is going to happen. It's just uh, sort of crazy because, you know, this is one of these events that was totally avoidable and totally needless, except for, I guess, the the uh, the gumption of Pelosi individually. Again, based on the superficial reading of these events, you know, I would hope that down the line we'll get a bit more of a thorough understanding of what prompted this because uh, you know it's got everybody uh, on edge and I would say uh, probably rightly so so uh, curious what others think and let's go to Andrew hello again hi there Um, so regarding Pelosi going to Taiwan or not there are a couple interesting points I think uh, first of all you mentioned it that she's leaving us in suspense it's this maybe I'll go there maybe I won't type thing, which is very odd on its own, even by itself. I wonder what you think of that, particularly as my first question. Well, what Pelosi has said is that she doesn't discuss her travel in advance, right? She said that at a press conference, I think, last week. And 
I think that probably is the standard protocol. I mean, what she said was, I wouldn't even tell you in advance if I'm going to London. Um, I don't know. Is that just sort of a uh, fig leaf to keep everyone in suspense for some more kind of deeply rooted strategic reason? I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I saw some reports coming out yesterday when she actually did for the first time put out a statement as to her travel itinerary where it was being claimed that she dropped Taiwan from the list of places she vi- she's visiting, even though she didn't drop it. I mean, she just didn't reference it directly in her itinerary statement. Um, so, I mean, I got to think that there is a logic behind why she is not announcing this publicly yet, um, I'm sure she could just repair to some kind of security-related explanation where, you know, because it's a sensitive location, they have to be extra scrupulous about, you know, managing the uh, flow of public information. But at this point, I mean, it's been reported all across different media from in both Taiwan sources and U.S. sources that the trip has been confirmed. So maybe there'll be some last-second, you know, change, I guess, but um, there's a whole kind of multitude of sources now which have seemed to confirm that she is going. Um, and the only thing as far as I've seen that is still in question is whether she's going to stay the night tomorrow. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I would I would think that the, the, the ambiguity around this and, you know, the reluctance to confirm things one way or another and you even saw this with the uh, I was listening to the to John Kirby who used to be the Pentagon spokesperson now he's some kind of National Security Council spokesperson at the, the White House you know they had they had him out for a press briefing today and even he was kind of steadfast in refusing to confirm one way or another where you know whether Pelosi was even going to do the trip but at one point he slipped up and actually confirmed it <laughs> um but yeah, the uh, there there seems to be like a bit of a sleight of hand here, where you know they at least want to give the impression that there are differing views on this between Pelosi and the Pentagon or Pelosi and the Biden administration. And there was a report in the F Financial Times that uh, Jake Sullivan had personally briefed Pelosi about the dangers of the trip. And that got leaked. So, I mean, who knows? It's all kind. Of, it's a. It's sort of a uh, ambiguous situation now. At least that's being purpose. publicly publicly presented. Right, and then obviously it's strategic ambiguity or on purpose. So, um, yeah. I mean, this is my family members that I'm close to are very opposite of me in terms of like their views on Russiagate. They buy into it. They're like conventional establishment Democrat believers, and they're absolutely mystified as well as to what she's doing, what her motivations are, or anything really surrounding this. So I find that interesting it's that she's managed to stun the entire political spectrum. Yeah, you know, most of the discussion around this trip hasn't been related to what is supposed to be achieved by the trip. It's just this will she or won't she kind of uh, parlor game type thing. And so, yeah, I mean, it's unclear what the substance of her rationale would be because there must be some 
reason why she's even thinking that she should do this in the first place, yeah. right? And I guess you know the speculation would be, oh, because she wants to reassure Taiwan or or whatever. But I mean, all the all the explanations that I have seen, whether it's from like these newfound right wing supporters of Pelosi who you know like that she's doing something ostensibly hawkish vis-a-vis China or whether it's just kind of, you know, your generic partisan Democrats. I mean, they, they seem to all fall back on these cliches around, you know, standing up to China and, and this and that. It's all neocon tropes repackaged. Yeah, but it's like, it's just so nonspecific. I mean, it's just right. the most vague kind of pablum. Um, um, so, you know... There really doesn't – I don't know what the upside is. Even by the people who support this trip, like what, according to them, is supposed to be this major upside to doing this? Whereas like anybody who's following the uh, threats and the the uh, warnings of danger you know, should probably understand what the downside is. But the upside right. is still unclear. Well, only time will tell, I suppose. Um, I just had two quick things. If one, wasn't Pelosi the one that had the uh, supposed Chinese spy for a driver? What, didn't that occur? Did she? Driver? I I seem I, to remember I must have missed that, that or maybe I forgot. Democrat it. who was being had their limo driver investigated for being some kind of a spy of China. I'm pretty sure it was Pelosi. I could be wrong. People should fact check me on that. Um, secondly, just to end on this, um, I just want to say you have really good reporting here on the. Uh, Trump adjacent association that you're just talking about on this, uh, Colin. I think that's great reporting. And I thought I'd leave you with a funny anecdote. And I'll send you the video. I, I don't remember the source, but I downloaded it. Of, uh, <coughs> Feinstein's probably, driver. It's, I'm oh, seeing these reports. Yeah. So not okay, thanks. So close enough. Both San Francisco uh, Democrats in their 80s. <laughs> right. Eternal. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, it's just uh, I had to save this video because it was the funniest thing I've seen all year, I think. It was a video of Boris Johnson training Ukrainian soldiers and participating in the training. I believe it was in the U.K., but I'm not sure where it was. I think it was Ukrainians in the U.K. training with the British military. And uh, Johnson not only oversees this with all his tactical expertise, but he's actually geared up. He's got his bowl-cut weirdo haircut. He's got the ear pro on, and there's like a Ukrainian taking him around the – uh, quote unquote battlefield, the training battlefield, like pointing out what's going on and like giving him a fake grenade to throw and telling him where to throw it. And like Boris is making faces and shit. It's the funniest really? thing when, ever. When was this? It was very recent. I found it on a Russian telegram. I okay. saved it. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't yeah, know. I, mean, I, saw, I saw the video of Boris in the cockpit of some fighter jet recently, but. Uh, not this particular video, which yeah. I'd like to see. You're going to see it. I'm going to send it to you on the messaging app here if I can. But uh, at one point, they clear a room. And, of course, there's no actual enemies here. And Boris just kind of looks at the camera and goes, it seems to be going well. And I'm just thinking to myself, how could it not be going well? I mean, it, the whole thing is such a farce. It's so hilarious. And just thinking that he's already embarrassed being purged from government and this is how he's being uh, utilized in his last days, is being forced to run around a battlefield pretending he's throwing grenades at Russians. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, Liz Truss, the foreign minister who's apparently the uh, far and away favorite to be the next prime minister, uh, you know, depending on the outcome of the conservative leadership election, 
she's gone even further than Boris on various issues related to Ukraine. Like she gave a speech that I commented on at the time, I think in April, where uh, she was one of the first major, quote, Western officials to say that victory in Ukraine can only be achieved by retaking not just the territory that Ukraine controlled before the war started, but also by driving Russia out of Crimea. And uh, since she made that statement, you've seen that now being entertained more and more seriously, uh, including by Ukraine, like military intelligence officials and, and so on. And, you know, it's hard to pin down what exactly their, you know, strategic vision is in Ukraine because it's always just sort of a confluence of uh, contradictory statements and whatever, but there it have mostly been... seems fantasy. It's never actually something they're achieving. Yeah, maybe it's just aspirational, but anyway, you know, I, I, I think it's plausible that, you know, the, a top UK official saying that outright kind of gives them license to uh, be even more uh, aggressive in, you know, ass, you know, asserting the scope of their aspirations. And, you know, she's, you know, she's, you know, on course to now be the next uh, prime right. minister. So another bloodthirsty person. Well, I think the only way we can avoid all out war between the British or Russia and America, and I don't know why no one thought of this earlier, but I really think this might work. Why don't we just have Joe Biden, uh, Challenge Putin to a push-up contest. Wouldn't this resolve the whole thing? <laughs> I mean, obviously he'd win. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, he, Biden's done it before, right? And um, I remember when Biden, before the Michigan primary in 2020, was being heckled by a guy and, like, threatened to sock him in the face or something, and then Biden just won the primary that day. <laughs> so maybe he should just, you know, threaten him, um, challenge him to just a fist fight. I think it's our best option at this point, so... Thanks for your time. I mean, if Putin really does have uh, some fatal disease, as is always being speculated, you know, where he's supposedly, you know, riven with cancer or whatever, then it should be an easy knockout blow for Joe, even though like, he's a not a chicken like Joe. Yeah, exactly. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Michael. All right. Eric, a.k.a. Michael, longtime caller, as I'm sure everyone's aware Hey, this is Colin with Michael <laughs> Tracy. All right, thanks, Carly. <laughs> well, you do need a theme song. So you know the Carly Carly Rae Jepsen album "Emotion." Actually, it was I was obsessed with that album for quite some time. It's a classic. It is good, except there's one song I think called "Beautiful" with Justin Bieber. Uh, I skip. That's a skip for me. No, not on the not on the uh, not on that album. <laughs> Okay. I, I know it well enough to know that there's no Justin Bieber on the Emotion album. I put my Carly on shuffle and, and biked around the other day, and I was like, you know, this is just all this is good music. So Michael Tracy was right about again. Have <laughs> have I have I endorsed Carly Rae Jepsen you're before? Fa- on the, on I think Carly? you're her most famous uh, fan. <laughs> I don't I don't know about that. <laughs> you should you should interview her. I would. Does she have hot takes on stuff that I'm? I should research. Sure, I'm sure. Well, actually, I I was I was biking around D.C. and I was at the White House, you know, just biking around. But I saw um, Peter Ducey, uh, right? He's the son of uh-huh. Steve Ducey, right? Um, I was just I, with him uh, in uh, in Spain for the NATO summit. Well, that's funny. I was going to ask you just because I saw him and I was like, should I get a selfie? And I was like, I don't know what I would say to him. So I don't know. <laughs> you had any opinions on that? 
what I would say to Peter Ducey, I, I, like I wouldn't have much to say either. I had I would ha- I had an opportunity like a month ago to uh, <laughs> say something to him if I wanted, but you know nothing entered my mind. It's just one of the, it's one of these just people who you encounter who is like, I guess technically recognizable or someone who you have seen elsewhere, but you know doesn't really get your juices flowing to the point that you have any kind of pressing matters to bring to their attention. At least for me. Oh, and Eric dropped out. Yeah, I did. Uh, so I saw I was uh, amongst – I was on the, the uh, shuttle bus with uh, Peter Ducey in Madrid. And uh, he was with some Fox colleague of his that I didn't recognize. And, you know, at a certain point, I mean maybe – I don't know if this is because I'm probably – in the company of these types of people more than most Americans. But at a certain point, like the uh, novelty of seeing someone in person who you you know, might have seen before on TV or something, uh, that, that wears off, at least for me. Uh, okay, Alex, how's it going? Hello, Alex. Alex, if you are there, blink twice. Blink twice if you can hear me. Or uh, better yet, press the mute button or the microphone icon in the bottom right hand corner of the app if you do wish to speak. Alex going once. Alex going twice. And no Alex. Okay, Alex, if you're there, feel free to come back on the stage. And for now, we'll wrap up with Eric slash Michael, who, uh, I don't know, might have ejected himself inadvertently. Well, uh, I, I don't know. The app might be doing random ejects today. But, um, hey, but I, I find with the – I like you mentioned the no true Scotsman fallacy. I think it's um, – no true Scotsman puts butter in his porridge or it's like my cousin is a Scotsman. Yeah, exactly. You did, a better, you did a better job laying out the no true Scotsman <laughs> fallacy than I did just that. Well, but I do like it, I ha- I did you know I noticed you know with um, quote unquote America first people like the type of people who call themselves America first but wouldn't be invited to that summit you know the the Nick Fuentes and the Groypers and stuff but when it comes yeah. down to it you know they'll defend anything Trump does and they'll say you know just like anybody with a bias or anybody who's selectively charitable about people on their own side well when Trump was doing the serious strike that was to end the war not to prolong it right and that's just what you're going to hear from any partisan well i mean even i mean i don't know about fuentes i don't find him to be an interesting enough person to really follow in any great depth although obviously i'm aware who he is and i've had you know uh hostile exchanges with him in the past but i guess people broadly of that ilk even including you know a handful of maybe members of congress who are not seen as quite as reputable, let's say, by uh, other Republicans. Even these types of people, yeah, they'll gripe about the... It's not just about Trump, I I guess what I want to say. It's not just that they'll excuse or rationalize stuff that Trump himself does. It's just it's more that they're they're ultimately just loyal Republicans. They're just partisan Republicans. I mean, because I mean, do they not want the Republicans to get the majority in the House of Representatives? Because if that happens, then it's Kevin McCarthy who's going to become Speaker. It's not like they're withdrawing their support for their or withholding their support for the Republican Party. 
I mean, do they want the the Republicans to win the Senate? I think all these people do, and that means empowering Mitch McConnell. So it's like kind of how I mean, I, I said this on Twitter, I think yesterday, but it, it's pretty much perfectly analogous to what a, to a lot of so-called socialists do, meaning that they're uh, you know dissidents insurgents who you know hate the mainstream of the democratic party and are constantly posturing as you know diehard opponents of you know the corporate wing of the democratic party or the centrist or whatever no but when when push comes to shove they're they're always going to basically be operating politically so as to empower the democratic party whether that means Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi or whomever, Joe Biden. So I mean, I think I think this whole charade of you know pretending like you're this dissident voice within either party, yet at you know at the end of the day, ultimately what you're doing is just funneling support into that party's base. That I think is uh, tiresome. So. Um, it's not even about Trump per se, because you know America First, as I said in that article, really now is more or less just synonymous with mainline Republican who is positively disposed, more or less, toward the previous Republican administration. I mean, it's really nothing beyond that. It's just now this is the the branding that they they place on that, um, you know, because quote unquote establishment Republican is not the most enticing uh, branding so they chose something else um, but now you know the DC sort of professional class uh, at least in the Republican Party is fully integrated within the quote America first movement as evidenced by a guy <laughs> actually uh, introducing himself to me at the summit as a quote swamp creature in a half joking way and he had worked for some federal agency uh, under Trump administration, and you know, of course, one of the reasons why they come to events like these is to network or to kind of uh, maintain their connections in hopes of eventually serving in another Republican administration, or uh, if you're a campaign operative, serving on the next iteration of the Trump campaign. So, uh, you know, part of why I wrote this piece is because I think it maybe was once the case that implicit in America First as an ideal or as an ideological designation um, is this sense that America first is kind of inherently antagonistic toward the status quo of the Republican party or something, or is the insurgent faction against the establishment faction. Um, Whereas those distinctions as of now in 2022 have been just pretty much entirely erased if they ever existed in the first place. I mean, I think they probably did exist for a short time in 2016 into 2017, maybe. Uh, But now, I mean, it's long past the time where there's any intelligible uh, kind of divide between those, those groupings. Otherwise, I mean, how could it be the case that Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham and Steve Scalise and Joni Ernst and uh, Rick Scott <clears throat> and all these people would be comfortable, comfortably participating in a so-called America First summit? And not just any – again, not just any America First summit. The marquee America First event that is sort of incubating the policy agenda for the next Republican administration and also incubating the staff of the next Republican administration. So, anyway. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting um, because you mentioned, like, for example, you know, how at the end of the day, the Democrats, you know, that phenomenon of, you know, well, we still have to defeat whoever the Republican is and back Pelosi, you know, uh, at the end of the day. And I guess, um, I don't know if you noticed this, but something Fuentes goes on about is that he um, basically, you know, his idea was to throw the Georgia election. You know, he want, he said that you have to punish the Republicans for not supporting Stop the Steal and that it's good to oh, get rid right, of yeah. those two. So I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I, you know, as, uh, within his... The Georgia election, Senate elections, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, I mean, that's, those swung the Senate. So it's curious. I'm just curious to think if there would have been any left-wing equivalent, and then even if that makes made any sense internally, coherently. But, um... Yeah. Just something to think about. Well, there. I mean, if, if I mean, I I had forgotten that or maybe never knew it, that he actually called for it. I mean, who knows what he is earnestly advocating at any, any given time, based, given, you know, the whole ethic of uh trolling that seems you know inherent in the uh political style of those types of people at least including him with you know they claim that they're leading groiber rebellions or whatever i mean i I don't know i haven't been i haven't been uh keeping up with his latest travails but yeah i mean maybe there are some except maybe there are some exceptions where there are certain figures you know media personalities who would actually you know uh explicitly withdraw support for like a republican senate nominee or something but but by and large, I mean, at least in terms of the uh, elected officials who, you know, will binge about how, you know, the establishment of their party is just not up to snuff. I mean, more or less, they're always going to be supporting just the broad thrust of the party being re-empowered or what have you. So, I, I don't know. I, I, again, you could always find exceptions. I guess I'm just sort of... In general, expressing a uh, weariness of this whole charade that doesn't really amount to much most of the time. <clears throat> One last question. Could you ever imagine somebody on the left trying to co-opt the words or the slogan America first? Like Bernie or anybody saying, well, of course we should put America first. You know? I'm just curious. <clears throat> well, I don't see why they couldn't. I mean, they they certainly could. It's it's a it's a vague and abstract enough concept that you can pretty much project whatever you'd like onto it. But I doubt they would now because of its association with with Trump. I mean, so in theory, yeah, it should be possible. Um, I mean, you can you could even imagine like a left wing argument that was maybe like anti corporate, like going back to the kind of animating ideology, for example, behind like the anti-WTO protests in Seattle in, w- in 1999. I mean, I, I doubt any of them would have said America first because it seems nationalistic, right? But you could make an argument against like international corporate suprastructures uh, where, you know, uh, autonomy is being taken from local communities because corporate interests are being so deferred to and given basically, you know, quasi-governmental powers and uh, can't be held accountable because they're so, because they're now, you know, supra, supranational, right? Um, or even maybe a variation of the argument could have been made with respect to the uh, TPP in, uh, you know, 2016, 2017, when, you know, that was a 
top Bernie Sanders position, right? You know, opposing the TPP and opposing these other kinds of uh, trade deals. I mean, you could say, you know, America first means not handing over Americans' uh, decision-making powers to these uh, unaccountable international corporate bodies, something like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's conceivable, but now, of course, they'd never do it because even attempting to, quote, co-opt America first could make you susceptible to allegations that you're like an insurrectionist or a MAGA terrorist or something. So, all right. Well, uh, all right. thanks, Eric slash Thank Michael, you. as always. And uh, Kevin, you are up. Kevin, if you're there. Make sure you press the microphone icon on the bottom right to unmute yourself. But if you're not there, then nothing I can do, really. Nothing anyone can do except pray. All right, everybody. So pray. Oh, there's Kevin. Hello. Hey, how are you? Oh, actually, I called you by accident. <laughs> oh, did you? Okay. <laughs> well, um, you can just make up something random to say, or we can you know, just pretend the, this the never interview, happened. The interview you had with that um, Michael Capudio. Sorry, who? The, the interview you just did with my, that uh, Trump advisor. Is it Mike? Oh, Michael Caputo. Yeah, no, that was that was from three years. That was from over three years ago. Oh, All, really? I don't know why, but out of nowhere, he seemed to he just recalled that it was a good interview and, and decided to tweet it. So no, that oh, wasn't I, recent I at all. That was uh, I, that was years I old. Was just, I, I was fascinated with it though. It just seemed so good. Oh well, yeah. Thank you. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, Michael Caputo is this um, you know Trump advisor of sorts. Trump world advisor, I guess you could say, and he got embroiled in the Mueller investigation. And, you know, he was a longtime uh, right-hand man of Roger Stone, although they had been pitted against one another in various times. He was sort of like in the New York and Florida political operative scenes. And, yeah, so in 2019, I interviewed him about uh, mostly Mueller stuff, but also, you know, Trump-related political history because he had been, you know, in Trump circles for for many years. And uh, yeah, like I uh, said, all of a sudden, randomly out of nowhere, uh, yesterday he tweeted that it was the best, it was the most, like, I think he said informed or just generally best interview he uh, had done with someone. So yeah, it was sort of a nice uh, compliment. And yeah, uh, yeah it was pretty that. interesting. That was great. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought it was new too. <laughs> no, no. May 2019. <laughs> okay. Maybe you should interview him again. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Yeah, anyway, so yeah, people can look up that if they want to. I uh, retweeted it last night, or it's on my uh, old U- it's on my YouTube channel, which I haven't been updating recently because I've been doing other stuff, but it's just YouTube. Uh, just type in YouTube M. Tracy, and you'll, you can find it. All right, well, thanks, uh, Kevin. At least you uh, ac- uh, your accident enabled you to give me a nice compliment, which is better than being sure. trolled. <laughs> yeah, you got enough of those lately. <laughs> Yeah, I mean they're uh, they've been in hype. Uh, they, it's they've been in overdrive since since yes, Ukraine have, yeah. Ukraine war started. But maybe in the past month or so, there's been more of like a organized pro Ukraine anti Russia like troll movement that's kind of more cohesive. That you know has apparently has me as 
one of their top targets, which is fine. I mean, I can I can handle it, but you know, it's it's a tad annoying. And but you know, if that's how they want to spend their time, then you know, more power to you, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's leave it there. Hopefully, hopefully, the world will not be obliterated uh, by the time we convene another call in session. And uh, otherwise, you know, I guess uh, Nancy Pelosi will have sacrificed us all at the. Uh, at the altar of her ego, which, you know, is definitely the way that I know. I personally want to go out in a blaze of glory. Um, all right, everybody. Well, uh, take care and yeah, but... let's uh, do it again soon. Bye-bye.